Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of James, chapter 3. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text written on the back of the bulletin. We now return for two or so weeks to the book of James. As I remind you, we're going back and forth between James, Psalm 119. And we now are going to begin a section of James that is part of an even larger section. I'd like to actually read James 3.1 all the way through 4.12. I think it's a, the central unit in the book. And then James 3.1-12 being a subsection of that. And the focus in this section is on um, conflict, peace in the community, wisdom, and James's concern that the body of Christ would be harmonious and at peace with itself, not gossiping, slandering, quarreling, cursing. I think you'll see that throughout. So let's begin by reading, and then we'll have a word of prayer. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, set on fire, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? 
Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but... If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Lord God, as we look at this passage, we are reminded of your concern that we might relate to each other and to you rightly. That our tongues, which are capable of such good things of grace, are also capable of bitter, poisonous water. That our desires within us can lead to quarreling, warfare, fighting. That our desires among us can lead us to be unfaithful to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we might have your heart in these things, have your mind in these things. And that in particular this morning, we would understand the immense importance and priority of controlling and directing our tongues, that we might speak the words of life. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter and a half section I've just looked at begins and ends with sins of speech, and the the predominant focus throughout are causes of conflict, strife in the body. We're going to look at the first subsection, verses 1 to 12, which culminates in brothers cursing each other, strife in the body, the potential for that. And we're going to look at those 12 verses over two weeks itself. So this week, next week, we'll go through the first 12 verses, God willing. Probably spend a week in Psalm 119, and we'll come back to this. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the necessity, the need to tame your tongue. To tame your tongue. This section links back with what James has already set up in his book. If you'll turn back to verse chapter 1, verse 19. Um, He sets up three topics that he discusses at great length. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And in some respects, that quick to hear, and we know he means by hearing doing, is the major theme of chapter 2. Being slow to speak, guarding your tongue, which he then again sets up in verse 26, 
of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And we talked when we looked at that verse about how we're, we tend to undervalue the significance of the words we speak. As children, we used to say, sticks and stones may hurt, break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That, that's a lie. That's not true. Words can do tremendous damage. We tell ourselves that because we want to undervalue and downplay the significance of our words. Well, James will have none of it. And here in chapter 3, he will spend half of the chapter focusing just on the use of the tongue. And then the second half on the further causes of strife and conflict, which we know frequently caused by the tongue as well. So let's look at this. We're going to look at this in this morning in the first two points, perhaps, maybe even just the first point. I think verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3 really can be broken down into five points about the tongue. I'd like to begin looking at the first two verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So here we have James's. Um, marked way of entering into a new topic. You have the, my brothers, a plural noun of address with an imperative. My brothers, not many of you should become teachers. And that may seem like a strange change of topic, especially where we've just come out of. But he's using this to segue into the tongue. The issue of teachers will, at least by implication, come up again in chapter 3. We know something about the teachers, the people of prominence in the body are his concern. Look at verse 13. How does it begin that section? Who among you is wise and understanding? So we're looking at those who the community of faith views as wise. We're looking at those who in the community of faith are the teachers. There's going to be some overlap. He's concerned, among other things, with the leadership of the local church. So your first point here is the central importance of the tongue. The central importance of the tongue. The use of our tongues is of central importance, not a peripheral matter at all. So he begins with his warning, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Now the first point to make here is this is not a warning against the act of teaching. It's not a warning against teaching. In some respect, we're all to be teachers. Parents are to teach their children. Older women, according to Titus 2.3, are to teach the younger women. And in one respect, the, the result of Scripture being in us, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with what consequence? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In that respect, all the time, all day long that we're talking, there's a sense in which we're teaching. People can learn from what we say. That's not what's being addressed here. He's not saying don't try to edify and build people up. Don't speak truth to each other. Don't teach in that sense. What we're actually looking at here is about entering the formal position of a teacher. We're talking about institutional authority, becoming a teacher. That's your job title. That's your function. And we know from early in the book of Acts, Acts 13.1, that such positions were already in place. In Acts 13.1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, and he goes on, he names five of them. 
James doesn't mention deacons, but there is evidence even at this early state, James being one of the first books of the New Testament, if not the first book of the New Testament written. Turn over to chapter 5. James does know about elders. So the fledgling early church has teachers, and the fledgling early church has elders. Look at verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders. Now, deacons, as far as we can tell from reading Acts, were created out of necessity. And maybe these early churches already had them. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. But James knows of teachers, and he knows of elders. Elders teach, but not all teachers are elders. And so the warning, then, is about presumptuously entering into that office, that, that, that role. Not many of you. The, the verbal emphasis is in the becoming Not many of you, my brothers, should become teachers. So that's the warning. Why? What's the rationale? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. What's interesting here is James, for the first time, adds himself into the text. It's we. It's not you. He'll do it again in verse 9. And we know James is a teacher and leader in the Jerusalem church. So he's, he's putting himself under this warning as well. Why is it that not many of us should be becoming teachers? Because we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now this is completely in keeping with Jesus' teaching. He says we, we know. Well, How do they know this? If this is the first or possibly the first New Testament book written. Once again, James is piggybacking off of the public, regular teaching of his older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider Matthew 12, 37. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Or Jesus rebuke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They devour widows' houses, Mark 12, 40, and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. That phrase, greater judgment or stricter judgment. Luke 20, 47, again, they will receive the greater condemnation. Who did Jesus said in his public ministry get the most severe condemnation? Teachers who were doing it poorly, both in their teaching and in the lives they lived. So James is applying that principle in the church. Jesus made it clear people in teaching offices, when they did it poorly, wickedly, received the greatest condemnation. So too in the church, teachers, those who teach, will receive a more severe judgment. Which raises the question, what does he mean here? I've heard people use this two ways. One way that I think is right, one that I think is wrong. I do not think James is indicating that teachers here do not live by a greater standard. I've heard it taught that way. There's, there's ethical standards for lay people, for normal people, but if you're going to be a pastor, an elder, a teacher, then there's a higher standard that you're held to, whatever that might be. Maybe it's a higher standard of dress, higher standard of personal life. I don't, I don't buy that at all. There's one standard. It's Jesus, and we're all to be like him. There, there, there's no you know, different tiers there's, there's holiness and there's not holiness. There's the truth and the lie. It's light and darkness. There's no gray area. There's one standard. It's Jesus. Rather, teachers will face a greater judgment. The, the, the consequence of the judgment 
If you think of it in modern day parlance, one offense might carry with the potential of six months to a year in prison. Another offense might carry the potential of three to six years. Greater judgment. One standard, teachers receiving the greater, weightier judgment. Paul talks about this judgment in 1 Corinthians 3 about those who build with costly stones. Their work will be tested with fire and those whose work burns up, they themselves will escape all those those through fire. This is also in keeping with Jesus' teaching that whoever much is given, much will be required. By entering into the office of teacher, you, you are claiming, the body is attesting that you, you know some things worth passing on, that you have some giftedness useful corporately. You have some things. You're going to be required to give an account for those things. That, that's the idea. So there's not two standards. There's one standard. We've got to be like Jesus. We've got to be holy. We've got to do what pleases the Lord, at least strive to. But those of us to whom more is given, more will be required. Those of us who teach, there's the danger of hypocrisy. What we teach, we don't do. Those of us who use words as the primary way of serving the body have so many more occasions to stumble with our speech. So James is warning the spread out church. I don't think he has any particular person in mind that the letters written to the, the 12 tribes in the dispersion around the Greek and Roman world. And he's just telling them, hey, don't, don't be too hasty to enter the role of a teacher. We, we know that's a problem Paul dealt with. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 6-7. He, he leaves um, Timothy behind in Ephesus. And why does he do that? Well, for one reason, to shut down, to stop disqualified, unqualified teachers. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. So Ephesus had a problem with people who wanted to become law teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand what they're talking about. They're being presumptuous. So that's, that's the rationale. Teachers will face a greater judgment. So then he's going to move to his metric. Along what axis is James going to consider the measurement of teachers? We who teach are going to suffer a greater, heavier judgment. Now, we're all going to face judgment in that sense, Christ's Bema seat. But we who teach, the ABF leaders, Sunday school teachers, the elders, suffer a stricter judgment not in, in a higher standard, but rather a weightier consequence. On what axis is, is James concerned? Now, we're going to be evaluated in a number of ways. James is going to consider one, and it's going to be the tongue, our words. And it makes sense. Those who teach are those who serve in words. It's not the only metric, but it's the one James is looking at, the metric. We, for we all stumble in many ways. If any man does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect Man. So, first point. Teachers are as capable of sin as everyone else. And James admits on the one hand, we all, we all stumble. James doesn't believe in sinless perfection. We all stumble in many ways. All of us. And again, it's we. James the elder also stumbles in many ways. Another reason why it's a fearful thing to enter into the office of teaching, because just because you enter that office doesn't mean you stop stumbling. It just means when you do stumble, it's more significant. We all stumble in many ways. T teachers are as capable of sin as anyone else. 
Point two, we learn right speech is the preeminent mark of Christian maturity. At least as far as James is concerned. Right speech is the preeminent mark of Christian maturity. James here, I think, is even just considering accidental lapses. That word for stumble is the same word he used in chapter 2, verse 10, where he talks about, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails or stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. The idea there being just a small little infracture. I I don't think he's viewing here fundamentally high-handed, wicked words. Rather, just it, it is really hard to not stumble, to not err. We all stumble in many ways, and teachers as much as everyone else. And James is going to point us to the fact that the right speech is the preeminent mark of Christian maturity. The preeminent mark of Christian maturity. Now it's interesting. James is going to look at teachers, and next he's going to look at those who are wise in the body, and he is not going to touch on doctrinal content. It's not to say it's not important. Paul does that. So Paul will tell us that those who would be elders have to be able to teach the word as faithfully taught and refute those who contradict. Older men are to be sound in faith. John will write that if anyone denies that Christ has come in the flesh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. There are doctrinal tests and requirements for leadership in the church. James isn't going there. It's not that that isn't important, just not his concern. James is intensely practical. If you want to put it simply, the qualifications for wisdom, (laughs) are you a nice, meek person with nice, meek fruit in your life? Qualifications for teachers, are you a blessing with your tongue or a curse? Does sweet water or bitter water come forth when you speak? And these things are far more important than we're likely to consider it. Um, Scott McKnight, a commentator, writes this about this. His concern... Is an abuse of power. But the abuse, so unlike many warnings in the rest of the New Testament, is not about false teaching, but bad manners, leading to a fractured and fractious community. The long-term impact of these leaders and teachers is not heresy, but a community at odds with itself. You can be a false teacher one of two ways. You can teach what is false, or you can sow discord and conflict, model arrogance. Both would be wicked and harmful to the body. James is looking primarily here at the potential for those who lead and teach to have unguarded tongues that stumble and the immense consequence that will have for their own judgment and for the body. That's, that's the idea. Right speech is the preeminent mark of Christian maturity. In fact, he goes on to say that such a person who who speaks rightly, who doesn't stumble, he's got his tongue under control, is perfect and or complete. When we think of perfect, we think of sinless perfectionism, but he's arrived. He's he's full grown. He's mature. This is the same word he used back in chapter 1. Why should we rejoice in trials? Because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work so that you will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Same word. The picture is of full maturity. If someone is able to not stumble in how they speak, that is a full-grown, fully mature saint. That's what James says. In fact, he makes a bigger statement than that. 
Such a person is able to fully bridle his whole body. And let that sink in. When we think of the sins and struggles that we have in our lives, we tend to think of physical desires and reining those in as the most difficult. Struggles with addiction, struggles with sex, struggles with alcohol, with drugs. When we think of those as the life-dominating struggles, the, the big ones. James says if, if you've got somebody who can control his tongue, he will be able to completely rein in his body. It's harder to control your tongue than to quit drugs, alcohol, or sex, in other words. If you're able to do the one, you're surely going to be able to do all the others. That's a big claim, and I don't think we think of controlling our tongues as that challenging or as that important. And that's part of the reason I think he spends 12 verses on this. Because we're like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know we're supposed to speak well and speak rightly. And James said, no, you don't understand. (laughs) that The bar is high. Standard is high, and if someone could attain to it, if someone could control the tongue, if they could not stumble in what they say, here's somebody who's going to have everything else under control, who will be able to restrain and bridle his whole body. That's the claim James is making, and that's in part why James is going to give so many examples to to, to drive the point home. He's aware that his audience is likely to underestimate the significance and the difficulty of the tongue. So, such a person is able to fully bridle his whole body. Now, we've got to pause for a moment and talk about what does it mean to bridle or control your tongue. Now, I think the most sophomoric approach would be to think simply of that means you don't say the bad words. And that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. Sure. Amen. It is so much more, though. I want to just give you a look through the book of James, the places where James... Um, commands or prohibits speech. Let's look first at ways that there are many ways to stumble in speech. First, by commission, things you say that you ought not to say. We've already seen some. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Here's a way you can stumble in your speech. You can grumble and complain and blame God when you're in a trial. That's, that's a way. I want you to get a picture just in James of the scope of the sphere and arena in which the tongue works and serves in which we need to not stumble. We, ought, we must not say, God is tempting me. Go to 119. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. We, we need to not have many words. Slow to speak. Thoughtful. Intentional. 216. We'll pick it up in 2.15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Insincere, hypocritical, empty speech. Speech that pretends to be one thing and reality is something else. That's a way to stumble in your speech. How's about this one? Yeah, I'll pray for you. You better follow through with it. Well, that's what's going on here. You get, the, you get the appearance of being kind and loving. I'm praying for you. Go in peace. Can I, can I have some food? Can I have some clothing? No. That's a way to stumble in your speech, according to James. Look at 3.9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You can just speak harsh, rude cursings at people. That's, that's 
where James is going with this topic. That's what we're talking about as well. Go to chapter 4, where all these quarrels, look what causes them. Well, we want things. And James is going to make it clear implicitly in wanting things. We're going to try to get them. We're going to ask for them. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions that are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly. So here's a wrong type of speech we ought not to do. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges law. This is when we're talking about gossip and slander. We'll get there in a few weeks or a month or two. But you're, you're pronouncing judgments like you're the judge. So-and-so's a jerk. So-and-so's got a temper problem. And you're not acting as one under the law, but a judge over the law. And it's called speaking evil and it's wicked and it needs to stop. And, and James is going there. Or... 4.13, you could sin in your speech by boasting. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You ought not to speak in ways that make you seem self-sufficient, not reliant upon the living God. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Man, James, all I said was we're just going to Cancun next month. Yeah, but you're speaking in a way that doesn't indicate your every breath is dependent on the living God. That boasting is evil. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what God expects of our tongue is I think a little broader and more nuanced and detailed than we're given to think. Let's go a little further. 5.12, 5.12, another thing you can sin in your speech, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that, that's just some of the prohibited things we're not to do. Let's take a look at some of the speech positively. It's not all just negative. It's not, if you think of controlling your tongue as simply not saying the bad things, you've got best got half the picture. And the bad things are more than the 12 bad words. The bad things are grumbling and insinuating God's tempting you. Speaking as if you're a power and not dependent on Him. Speaking, you know, sharing a prayer request that's really speaking evil of a brother or sister. Those are the types of things we ought not to do. What types of speech ought we to do? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. You ought to speak to God and ask for wisdom when you need it. You ought, you ought to be doing that. The wealthy or rich brother ought to boast, rejoice in his humiliation. Chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. Pause here. I want to go look at that royal law briefly because I want you to see that the second greatest commandment, the royal law, love your neighbors yourself, in its first and primary instance is about required speech for your neighbor. Turn to Leviticus 19. It's just all over the place. In fact, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself in my notes here. I want to suggest to you that 
the overwhelming majority of good and evil things you can do in this life stem from your tongue. Certainly the building of the church is almost exclusively through the use of the tongue. So Jesus, King Jesus, sets as the moral center point of his ethic to his disciples, Leviticus 19. They ask him, what's the second greatest commandment? He says this. And I want you to see in its context what the second greatest commandment requires and is dealing with. It's perfectly in line with what James is going after. Okay? Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Okay, James. Okay. Not James, Moses. What should I do? You should reason frankly with your neighbor. Oh, I got to talk to him. Yeah. You got to use your tongue and reason frankly with him. Don't hate him. Talk to him. Lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, the second greatest commandment, is saying as a guard against hatred, as a guard against bitterness, as a guard against anger, go talk to the person who bothers you frankly. Yeah, there's required speech we need to do. And when, when people offend us and bug us and we hold on to it and we don't talk to them, we will begin to hate them. We'll begin to get resentful. We'll begin to want to get back at them. And so the second greatest commandment in its first instance is a guard against that type of conflict in the community. Go talk to them. There's speech we ought to do. So when James, back to James, talks about fulfilling the royal law, you should love your neighbors yourself, implicit in that is you are going and talking to your brother before you build up a head of steam, before you're angry. There is speech we need to do. 3.14, back in James, 3.14. No, no, sorry, not 14. 14 is bad speech. We're boasting to the truth. Sorry, wrong list. Um, Look at 17 and 18. What's the mark of heavenly wisdom? The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, open to reason. We're talking about having a discussion. You're open to reason. Someone's talking to you and you're listening. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You make peace with your mouth. I mean, you may do it with other things, but words have to be spoken for people to make peace. Okay? I don't think that's too far of a stretch. Then, then look over at five, five sixteen. 5.16. Here's some more speech that's required. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So God wants me at times to confess my sins to others in the body, and God certainly wants me praying for people who are sharing their struggles with me. Now, that's just a sample of James, not the Bible, just James at the diverse ways that we ought not to speak and the diverse ways we ought to speak. So when James talks about bridling and controlling your tongue, it's not simply don't say the bad stuff. There's plenty of good stuff you and I need to say. And a bridled, controlled tongue can both step on the brake and on the gas. That's what's in view. And then James can say, if you've got somebody who can do that consistently, perfectly, not erring... <laughs> He can do anything else. 
That's, that's what James is saying. That's what James is saying. Turn, turn to Ephesians 4 briefly. Um, Ephesians 4, we learn why Christ gave the body gifted people. We're, we're seeing mentioned teachers right here. And I want you to follow through with me what ministry the church has. Ephesians 4, uh, pick it up in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, we've made this point before. Whose is the work of the ministry? Is the work of the ministry the responsibility of the leaders and the teachers? No, it's the responsibility of the saints. I have a share in the work of the ministry insofar as I'm a Christian, not insofar as I'm a pastor. Pastor, teachers, the evangelists, the apostles, they are equipping ministries, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The coaches, the trainers. But to use a sports analogy, which I know is a dangerous thing for me, it's, it's, the, it's the laity, it's, it's the saints who run the plays. We're, we're training and practicing and equipping so that the saints can run the plays. So he gave these offices to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, what is that ministry? He defines it first for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so the ministry is to build up the body of Christ. And then he gives us an idea of how, to what magnitude or scope, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Well, guess what? We're not there yet. We've got more work to do. And the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is to say we will not complete this project until the Lord returns. We will have work to do. Then he'll say it negatively. What does it mean not to be built up? That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, what is it that we do? What is this work of ministry? How do we build the body up? Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Get, get the totality. This isn't everybody's job. This speaking the truth in love is for everybody. By which every joint is equipped when each Part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So to summarize, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is the building up of the body of Christ, and the building up of the body of Christ occurs when each joint, sinew, and member speaks the truth and love to itself so that the body builds itself up in love, which is to say the work of the ministry is speaking. Oh, there's more. There's giving and coming alongside, but... (laughs) What is evangelism but speaking the truth and love to your unsaved neighbor? Right? We've got some people here who want to go overseas to speak the truth and love to some people. And I'm excited for that. What is counseling but speaking the truth and love to someone struggling? What is rebuke but speaking the truth and love to someone who's erring? What is encouragement but speaking the truth and love to someone who's faint-hearted? And on and on and on we go. Words. Words matter. How we say them and when we say them is of such great importance. 
It's why I say virtually every good thing you will do in this body will be accompanied with or involve words. So James says, look, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because those who teach, there's going to be a weightier judgment. And we all stumble in many ways. Let's consider just the stumblings of the tongue for a moment. And if anyone's able to not do that, he can handle any part of his body. It's of the immense central importance of the tongue. We underestimate its significance. We underestimate its impact. He's going to go on then. Point two, we will make it. We've got ten more minutes here. Point two, the disproportionate influence of the tongue. In some respects, the rest of this section is him bolstering the point he's just made. I think he expects his readers to go, if you can control your tongue, you can rein in any other part of your life. Your spiritual life will be completely under control. There'll be nothing too hard. That's what he's saying. The hardest aspect of the Christian life to control is the tongue. That's what he's saying. If you can do that, you can rein in and bridle any other portion of it. I think he expects his readers to go, no way. I mean, I know it's important. Not that big of a deal. Because he just brings on example after example after example after example after example. We'll just look at the first one here. And his first point is this. There is a disproportionate influence of the tongue. He gives two examples, and then he brings the point home. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. Okay? I think these two pictures make clear enough sense, but let's go through it. The first, what's the point? A large horse is controlled by a small bit. I didn't realize this until I got up close to them, but horses are big. Those of you who ride them know what I mean. I almost, I almost asked if you could bring a bit in. So I could, but, but horses, like whenever I get up close to a horse, I always have the impression, I forgot how big a horse is. And I get this impression that if this thing kicked me, I'd die. Horses are big, powerful creatures. If you've just seen them on TV, you don't know. They're big. And they're powerful. They can carry a, a rider many miles. And these big, powerful beasts that you would lose if you tried to just manhandle. If you tried to wrestle it, you'd lose. You put a bit in its mouth, it goes exactly where you want it to go. You guide and control it. That's, that's the point. The large and powerful horse it's controlled by a small bit. And notice the, the emphasis on total control. The horse obeys, and we guide their whole bodies as well. Small thing. Exerting a disproportionate influence of control. Proverbs um, Psalm 32.9, I'm sorry, Psalm 32.9 says this, Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. And again, it's just this basic idea. We know how to make a horse obey. You put a small bit in its mouth, you put some reins on that, and the horse becomes obedient. The horse is guided and directed where you wish it to go. Then he considers the next example, verse 4. Look at the ships also. And then he really makes it clear that's his point. I'm just telling you from my little experience with horses and how shockingly big they are when I get up close to them. 
He makes it explicit here. Ships, they are so large and are driven by strong winds, not just any winds, strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Ships can be big. And I know the ships we make in our day are bigger than the ships in James's day, but even then, Romans, Rome had some big ships. These are big, heavy things, things that you could never move with your hands if they were in dry dock. Such big ships that not just a small breeze would push them. You need a strong wind. And ships that are so big and strong, they can stand up to a strong wind. This big, heavy, mighty ship that can deal with a big, strong, heavy wind is directed by a very small rudder. You get the disproportional influence. That's his point. And again, he emphasized just wherever the pilot wills. A good pilot can dock a boat precisely, can dodge reefs. With, with the use of a rudder, a skilled pilot can make that boat go exactly where he wants it to go. That, that's the type of power and influence he's talking about. Two examples of disproportionate influence. A tiny bit makes a horse obey and directs it to go where it the person who controls the bit wants. A tiny rudder precisely directs a large ship in strong winds. So what's the point? The explanation. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. You have this... And and when he talks about the tongue, he means speech, clearly. Um... Our, our tongues, our speech may seem like a small thing. And he's saying its ability to control and direct and its influence is far, far greater than we might think. We underestimate its power and its influence. If you didn't know, if you hadn't seen a rudder of a ship in action, you would think this small little thing be inconsequential next to the big boat. You're wrong. If you saw a horse running wild and someone showed you a bit and said, this little thing, I can make it do what I want, you'd laugh. James is saying, that's, that's what it is with your tongue. It boasts great things. And I don't even think he's zeroing in fundamentally on boast, although I think his focus is going to be negative. It claims great things, and in some sense, those claims are true. It's capable of great things. The very next point he's going to make is going to be the one of the forest fire. One little match, says Smokey, can light up the whole, right? I mean, you could have this huge consequence. But I want to leave with just two thoughts here from this as we, as we go out. He's, he's, he's using this as a metric to evaluate teachers, but this is for all of us. For all of us. Those who teach, listen to it as well. But please don't think, I'm not called to be an institutional teacher so I can sit out. No, God's calling on you to use your tongue to speak. We've seen in James all the different types of speech we are to do, we're not to do. Our speech has a massive, our speech has a massive effect on us and others. A massive effect. I was talking to Pastor Daniel before this message this morning about using the analogy of a rudder directing a ship, is the ship just me? In the first instance, yes, but certainly as we'll see going forward, that influence goes even beyond me. The things I say affect not just me, direct the course of my life, but others around me. 
And our speech has the potential for great, great evil. Our speech has the potential for great, great evil. I'm going to close by reading some passages. This is not, again, a new theme of James. Our Lord taught this. The Proverbs teach this. I'm going to read these passages and we'll sing our closing song. I just want you to listen again to the, to the statements in Scripture about all the powerful things we can do with words. And, and, and pause. It makes sense, right? The living God, the God who is, what is his weapon of choice? He talks. And the universe is made. And he sends his word to us and beholding glory that we're transformed. How, how does he make sons and daughters? According to James, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He birthed his people by his word. The creation exists by his word. He sanctifies his people by his word. His people go make more of his people by preaching his word. Is it not surprising then that he gives us image bearers the tremendous honor, privilege, and responsibility that our words are powerful and significant as well? in what they can do. Let me just read some of these to you. Proverbs 10, 13 and 14. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of one who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of fools brings ruin near. Proverbs 10, 19 to 21. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Proverbs 12.18, contradicting that proverb that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Rather, there is one whose words, rash words, are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your, your tongue can be like a sword stabbing people. I mean, think about it. If you've ever been beaten up, it's not pleasant. But if I think back on some of those painful experiences in my life, it's, it's harsh, cruel things people have said, not beatings I've taken. I mean, it hold true for everybody. But in certainly in my experience, the things that I have the most sting to when I think back on them are not sticks and stones, but words. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours out folly. Proverbs 15.4 A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness, perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 16.23-24 The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Well, just think of Psalm 119. We've been seeing the psalmist suffering at the hands of his adversaries. What are they doing? They're gossiping about him. They're slandering him. And it's painful. And his life's at risk. They're using words wickedly against him. Proverbs 25, 11-12, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Proverbs twenty six twenty to twenty two for lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper or quarrelling ceases. 
As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Now let's jump to the New Testament to Jesus. You have heard it said of old, Matthew 5.21, that you shall not murder, and that whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 12.34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance, the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason why it's so hard to control your words is there is a direct connection between your mouth and your heart. And what's in your heart will come out in your words. So a person who can control their words is a person who can control their heart. Matthew fifteen seventeen to 18. Do not see what comes out of the mouth passes from the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. My, my kids, you ever have this happen? My kids will say to me, they'll say something bad, I'll call them. Would you say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean it. No, you absolutely meant it. It's the overflow of your heart. It's absolutely what you meant. You meant to be mean to your sister. Now, if you want to say you repent, you've changed your mind. I don't want to be mean anymore. I'll, yeah, we can forgive you, but don't tell me you didn't mean it. Of course you meant it. Where do you think it came from? It came out of your heart. You were upset. You said the mean thing. You don't want to do it now. So what you want to say is not, I didn't mean it. I repent. I don't want to do that anymore. Awesome. Or Matthew twelve thirty six to 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Old Testament Proverbs make a big deal out of our words. Our Lord Jesus Christ made a big deal out of our speech. And James is telling us how we speak and controlling our tongue, whether it's the things we ought not to say or the things we must say, is of huge importance. And we need to start taking it seriously. We're going to look more at this next week. I'm going to call the worship team up. Let's sing our closing song. And then we'll have a time of fellowship. And then we'll hear from the schnorrs. Let me pray as the worship team comes up. Lord God, help us to take seriously, cause us to take seriously the importance of our words. There are no idle words. There are no insignificant words. There are only words spoken in love. that give healing and life. And there are words that are careless, rash, wicked. Make our tongues instruments of Christ. Our words serving our God. That just as our God who only speaks what is true and in His speech gives life and strength that we might do the same. Give us the grace to speak words of encouragement, words of correction, words of instruction, words of rebuke, words of evangelism words of love to each other and to our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.